Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road, where we are looking at the world of Jesus as it is told through the eyes of the Gospel of Mark. It's a unique perspective, and if you've been enjoying this podcast, I hope that you'll rate us, give us five stars, and tell your friends and your neighbors about Jericho Road. When we finish with the Gospel of Mark, we'll take a break for a few weeks in the summer months, and then we're going to come back with more thematic-based classes. And when I say thematic, I mean, I'd like to hear from you, which stories of the Bible would you like to unpack? Which themes of the Bible would you like to know more about? You can always send me an email at rwebster at saint-lukes.com, rwebster at saint-lukes.com, or you can find me on our website, just spell out saint. So we're looking at the last week of Jesus' life, and in the last podcast, we were looking at Wednesday night, and all four Gospels remember a woman anointing Jesus for his kingship and burial. Now we're here on Thursday night in the 11th hour, all four remember Judas, Judas Iscariot. His name is Iscariot, and that could mean several things, but most likely it means he comes from a place called Kiriot, which is a name that means cities, so Judas is literally a man from the city. And I want you to use your artful imagination here and remember what we've learned in two years of Jericho Road. The story of us begins not on Genesis chapter 1, page 1, but rather Genesis chapter 12, when a man named Abram is called to leave a city and be different in the way that God asked him to be different. In the gospel story, Jesus is tempted in the Judean wilderness in the shadow of Jericho, the oldest city on planet Earth. Now, cities represent the agrarian revolution, of course. They represent civilization, but they also represent a descent from something better. Remember, Genesis chapter 1 begins in a garden. Genesis chapter 11 ends in a city. Now, human beings went from something more equal, more something in sync with God and with each other, And down to a city where there would be only one king and many slaves, or there would be an army to guard the wheat or an army to attack the wheat and a a wall to guard the wheat and something less like a garden and more like a factory. And so in the shadow of a city, Jericho, Matthew and Luke remember Jesus being tempted by the devil. Jesus rebuffing the devil's own temptation for sustenance, power, and certainty to show us a better way of being human. Just like Abram in Genesis chapter 12, the story of the Gospels are an attempt to pull us away from what has been killing us, which we would later call sin. And here on a Thursday night, in the 11th hour of Jesus' earthly existence, a man from the city betrays this ideal. So let's look at what we know about Judas by reading the text first. This is, this is going to be Mark chapter 14. It's beginning with the 10th verse. The Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. To them, and when they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, the disciples said to him, "Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover?" So he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, "Go into the city, and a man carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him." And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. 
So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything that he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one after another, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve who is dipping the bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Well, I find it fascinating that Mark really gives no motive for this betrayal. Very intentional in telling the story this way, although Judas is certainly one of the complainers of verse 4 of this chapter. Remember when the woman breaks an alabaster jar of ointment, which she doesn't have to break, she can simply open it. But the completeness of the gift of thousands of dollars worth of ointment on Jesus' head leaves them completely aghast to the, to the point that they complain that a gift could be made to the poor. And it was a, it was a custom during this particular festival to make a gift to the poor, which suggests that perhaps they would have gotten some status associated with an exorbitant gift uh, to the treasury fund. So certainly he was one of the complainers, but we have no way of knowing for certain just why Judas did it from this text. Now, other stories in the Bible are a little more explicit. Uh, Mark chapter 26 tells us that the, the price was 30 pieces of silver. That's why he did it. In Luke's gospel, this is Luke 22 and John 12, they suggest that he was possessed by the devil. Mark 27 later says that he hanged himself. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, Peter says that he fell and burst open in a bloody field. Regardless of what we want to say or not say about Judas, we see a problem. His own betrayal sets up the salvation of humanity. Paul would see this own mistake as something being absolutely indispensable. I want to read 1 Corinthians to you, a portion of 1 Corinthians 11. But before I do that, I want to say something about Paul in his world. Paul would labor to make the world of Rome the world of Jesus, uh, places that were far, far away from Jerusalem or Galilee, far away from rabbis and disciples, far away from the stories of Jesus, but also the stories uh, of the Hebrew scriptures. He would, take, he would take a place like Corinth and he would make these stories their own. And part of his genius is he would take he would take aspects of their world and he would change it. So in Corinth, for instance, there were no weekends, uh, only festivals. There were no no break regular breaks in the week. Rather, there were there were periodic festivals dedicated to their own gods. So it might be Apollos or Diana uh, or the emperor cult. And they would have suppers. They would have a meal so that they could rest and gather. And so it might be called Apollos' supper or Diana's supper or the emperor's supper. So Paul would, would call their own rest and their own worship and their own love meal the Lord's Supper. It's where we got the name. And this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Well, right away, he remembers the betrayal. He can't, he can't even think about the meal without thinking about the act of Judas. It's almost as if it's all one in the same story. Medieval theologians would do two things with Judas, as best I could tell. They would say, well, it was preordained so that Judas' own betrayal was doing God's work. He was the fall guy, if you will, for the salvation of humanity. That's the first thing. The second thing that they would do is that it would begin virulent 
anti-Semitism uh, in, in medieval Europe that would, of course, continue to this day, and most tragically, in the middle of the last century. An Israeli novelist who's recently died named Amos Oz he wrote a novel in 2016 titled Judas, and it's about Judas, suggesting that he was the truest believer of all the 12, that he set Jesus up because he knew that Easter would happen. Those are all the ways we, we wrap our minds around and try to understand the betrayal. But let's go back to the world of Jesus and see if we can see something else happening on this night. I take many groups to Jerusalem, take many groups to the world of Jesus. We try to recreate the story. And one popular spot is a place in, the, in a Mount Zion neighborhood uh, in the, in the north, uh, north and west of the Temple Mount. Uh, it's, it's called... Um, uh, the south, I'm sorry, the south and west of the Temple Mount. It's called the Mount Zion neighborhood. And I was thinking north because it's up on a hill. Uh, it's the place of the Last Supper. This is what they call it. It's, it's called the Cenacle, and it's the upper room, and it's the place where Jesus and his 12 would have shared their meal. And it's beautiful, and it's colonnaded. It's got pretty arches in the room. And it's even a one-stop shop because downstairs below the upper room is the tomb of David. So you, you oftentimes see Orthodox Jewish people praying at the tomb of David while Christian groups are going upstairs to pray. The only problem with the, with the place is that it's simply a traditional site. Consensus among many scientists and religious scholars uh, uh, say that it can't be the burial place of David. That's, that's just an empty box. And, and then secondly, most importantly, the architecture dates from the 12th to the 14th century. So it's one of those places in Jerusalem that fascinate me in that it's a traditional place. Nothing probably happened there biblically, nothing even from the world of Jesus. And yet people for centuries have made this place holy with their tears and with their prayers. And it's quite something to see. Well, in addition to the traditional site of the upper room, when you've got the tour, tour buses going uh, right all day long uh, until they close in the evening, there's another possibility, and it's a little bitty church called St. Mark's Monastery of the Assyrian Orthodox Church. Now, in the back of this monastery, and this is a little little church within the city walls, the old city walls, the upper room is in a basement, actually. But it has the size, and it has the date, and it has the austerity of a first-century room much like a place where Jesus would have secured an order to eat. And 2,000 years ago, it would have been at the right level. It would have been upstairs. Still, there's no way to really know. But if I had to vote, I think that little broke-down St. Mark's Monastery just might be the candidate because it would be the humor of God to pick a place where nobody's looking. Well, when I take groups over there, I always love to show them these steps in the grass because in between the, the upper room, a church built to the site of Jesus' denial, other traditional sites, Christian pilgrims walking left and right and snapping pictures, all the neighbors, they're not looking down. There are first century steps in the grass running through this neighborhood, up from the Kidron Valley, beyond the Garden of Gethsemane, around the pinnacle of the temple, which was the southeast corner of the Temple Mount, and then to the west and then up the hill. So now we're in the southwest uh, corner of the Temple Mount and far away, there are steps that Jesus would have walked up into this neighborhood on the last night of his life. More importantly, these are steps that Jesus would have been dragged up under his arrest later that evening or early into that morning in the last hours of his life. And those steps have memory. I always love to show groups these steps because these are, these are something that Jesus touched. The other sites are places where we have to use our imaginations and we have to wonder that these steps knew and these steps have memory. Well, let's look at the text again. We're told that they secured a room somewhere for the feast. 
And verse 12 tells us that it was the first day of the festival. Now, this particular festival was a total of eight days. It was a pilgrim festival in which you were required uh, by the laws of Judaism to travel from a place like Galilee to Jerusalem, and it was one of three, so that the city would swell from, say, 35,000 people to a million people or more, and it was the wonder of the ancient world. And pilgrims were required to find a room inside the city in order to have the Passover meal. It was required by Deuteronomy chapter 16. So what Jesus does, he can't have the meal outside the city in the Garden of Gethsemane where they're probably camping. He sends two, just like he did back in Mark chapter 6, two by two by two by two. He sends two disciples into the city to look for a man carrying a jar. Now, that's a very, very important detail because carrying a jar is woman's work. So this is a sign. It's a signal. This is coordinated. This is carefully enacted theater like the Palm Sunday political theater of riding in on a colt. These guys are doing something carefully orchestrated, carefully appointed, if you will, to avoid arrest. It also harkens to another time when a king was anointed. I'll read a few verses to you from 1 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, It goes like this. This is the anointing of King Saul. Instead of a party, what you have is intrigue. 1 Samuel 10 verse 1. Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. And he said, the Lord has appointed you ruler over his people Israel. You shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hands of their enemies all around. Now this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you ruler over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by the Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has stopped worrying about them and worrying about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three kids, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine, and so on and so on and so on. I'm thinking here that even Hebrew kings must guard against intrigue, and power is carefully coordinated and rolled out. So a plan is in place until it goes awry. During the meal, Jesus reveals what will happen next. And in verse 18, he says it, one of you will betray me. Now, I've already alluded to this, but I want to tell you again, Mark is different from the others. Just as Mark doesn't ascribe any motive, Mark doesn't even even remember Jesus identifying Judas as one of the 12. Luke 22 is different. His hand is on the table. It is determined. Mark, Matthew 26 is different. The one who dipped his hand into the bowl with me would betray me. John 13 is different. The one whom I give this piece of bread when I dip it into the dish. But Mark is vague. They're all dipping into the bowl and they're all eating. So they all ask in verse 19, surely not I, surely not I. Which one is it? It could be any of us. I believe this story is a call to repentance and a realization that anyone has the choice to do good or to do evil. And it leaves us with a question. Was this a foreordained event or did Judas choose to betray his best friend on his own? Well, we need to remember block logic for a minute here. And and what I mean by block logic is to say we need to think like the people who wrote the Bible. We moderns like linear logic. We like our math to add up, right? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Two plus two equals four. We like to tie up 
our ideas in a nice, tidy sum that we can fact check again and again and again. But the Bible is written in blocks of ideas with God in the gaps. And using block logic, we might ask the question, was this foreordained by God to happen or did Jesus, Judas choose on his own? And answering the question with block logic, the people writing the Bible, the first Christians, the early Hebrews would say, yes, yes. Did you hear what I said? Yes, there's a mystery to this. There's a mystery between, between God's working through us and in us in a dance between our choices and God's plan. Does God have a plan? Yes. Do we have freedom? Yes. God is in the gaps. And this brings up a really, really big point here. I don't worry about Judas. I know Jesus said, uh, uh, woe to this person and would wish that they were never been born. I believe Jesus is alluding to the fact that Judas will feel extreme guilt, guilt to the point that would drive him to despair and suicide, as remembered by the other Gospels. Uh, I I believe that Jesus is pitying Judas uh, in a way that he knows uh, what pain his own mistake and his own decision will go through. But I don't worry about Judas because no one is beyond grace and forgiveness. And we see this in my favorite verse in the whole Bible, and it's Mark chapter 16, verse 7. And we'll go to this again as we look at the story of Easter and the resurrection, but it goes like this. On Easter morning, the tomb is empty. Women come to anoint the body for burial. It's not there. They're terrified. It's early. They can't, they're confused. They can't understand. There's a mysterious figure in the corner of the cave. Could be an angel who tells the women, but go, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you just as he told you, tell the disciples and Peter, please remember with me that Mark's gospel is very tight. It's terse. Not a word is wasted. Always pay attention to details. Tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you. Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee, just as he promised you. Tell the disciples and Peter. Judas would betray his best friend. Peter would deny his best friend, three times. But Peter would be no Judas. Peter would go on to become the rock upon which Christ would build his church with those scars. And it's a story that Peter could only tell on himself, but he would be remembered. But so will Judas. If Peter is not left behind, Judas is not left behind either. Judas will get his chance too. I believe this is the heart of hope for anyone who's had a loved one whom we worried or believed was beyond the pale of God's own forgiveness. Let's remember, nobody in this story gets left behind. Was it foreordained or was it part of a plan? Was it part of a plan that was fixed or did Judas have choice to choice in the freedom? Did God love him so much that he was empowered to make a decision? The answer is yes. God love Judas? Yes. Does Judas get left behind? Never, never, ever, never. And Judas, by his own mistakes and his own pain, becomes a vehicle for our salvation. We'll keep the podcast going. Just be thinking about it. Be thinking. There's a mystery to this, but no one gets left behind. Thanks, everybody.